Hi, everybody. Today we welcome Terry. She and her family came to the U.S. from Cuba in the early 60s when she was a child. Years later, when she was about to graduate from high school, Terry really wanted to leave home and go away to college, just like all her friends. But she was certain her parents would never allow it, so she didn't even bring it up. Let's get into it. My name is Terry Catasus Jennings. I was born in Cuba and I came to the United States when I was 12 years old in 1961. I am a writer and I am the author of the upcoming uh, The Little House of Hope and also its translation, La Casita de Esperanza. When I was young, I called my parents, mommy, papi. We did not talk. What can I say? You know, there's some families where, you know, you get your feelings out and you say, oh, well, I feel this way and I feel that way. Um, my family, I, I obeyed and I said yes. Not that my parents were unreasonable. Neither one of them was. We moved to Richmond, Virginia, where I was the only Cuban in my uh, high school. I had always, always wanted to be a writer. And my parents would never have agreed with, with that. So I was fairly good in math. And my dad was a banker and I thought, well, okay, so I can major, I can major in math because, you know, an immigrant needs a, a paycheck. They were very supportive about me going to college. I had to pay for it myself because by working, because we didn't, you know, they didn't have the money. They said, you're staying home to go to college. The University of Richmond was in Richmond, but I had always wanted to go away. And it was one of those things that we never really talked about. And, and I wish that we had. When I was a junior, I started looking at this and saying, you know, I really need to be away from my parents. I really need to be somewhere else. I wanted to just be able to not have any supervision. Not that I was a bad kid, but I wanted to be on pretty much on my own. And, and I, I felt guilty in a way because My mom, she kept saying, well, you're not helping me with the house. You're not helping me with the cleaning. And of course, I was working 40 hours a week. I was going to school. And I kept saying, what more do you want? And I think in retrospect, now being a mother, having had two children, in retrospect, what she wanted was my time. She wanted me. But I wanted my independence. I wanted to be, to take care of my own self. I wanted to be with my friends. I wanted to, I didn't want to be different. There's one thing, I did not want to be different. Gosh, out of uh, the kids that I graduated with, I was the one that stayed at home. I lost touch with a lot of the friends because they were all, you know, in this school and that school and they were writing to each other and there was a bunch of them in Madison, there was a bunch of them with Mary and all this and there I was by myself in Richmond. There wasn't any time that we talked about whether I could go to, to a school away from home because I knew what the answer was going to be. If I had originally gotten my numbers together and said, look, it's going to be a lot less to go to a, a school away from home, or I would have said, hey, I may want to be in engineering. I'm a math major. Maybe Virginia Tech is better than the University of Richmond for this. I might have been able to convince my parents of that, but I, I didn't do any of that. And in all honesty, my parents didn't have the time. 
they were trying to get food on the table and they were working so much that it was all up to me whether to, to do all the research. I should have gone to a school counselor, but I didn't do it. And then when I started learning about things that I could have gone away to school, it was too late and it wasn't worth having a conversation that I knew was gonna bring them, you know, grief. It would have been an argument. I still hear it from uh, Latinx families and I still see it. I think that the parents want to have their children close to them so they can keep eyes on them, so they can see that they are safe, so they can see that they're not straying away down some horrible path in this new country that they don't know every, you know, that they don't know everything about. I wish we had talked more about that and I had brought that up. I lost them young. My dad died right after my daughter was born and my mom died uh, soon after. I see now the conversations between us and our adult children. It would have been so nice to have been able to have those conversations with them. I will tell you that my son, you know, came back from college. And so he wanted to move into an apartment with a bunch of his friends. So I wrote him this little letter saying, okay, these are the things that you could do if you stayed home and saved money and then bought your own place. And he said, forget it. You know, when you get older and your your children become your best friends and I, my children are my best friends. And I wish that I had been my parents' best friends, but I didn't have that, that opportunity. In the 90s, a uh, full three decades later, I went through a very similar struggle as Terry. I get it. And on the show, we hear stories like this all the time. How can we manage this push and pull as first gens? How can we balance what we want for ourselves, for our education, our ambitions, our lives, our careers, our partnerships? How can we balance all of that with what our families expect of us? And while there has been a ton of progress, and this show is also evidence of that, we hear it a lot, Terry's story really made me ask, are we stuck? (laughs) Are we just going to repeat the same conversation generationally? So I figured we need help. So I called in an expert. My name is Denise Solaire-Cox, and I'm one of the founders of Project Enya. We're a multimedia production company, and we made a film that came out six years ago called Being Enya. And it's about what it feels like to be a part of the Latino diaspora here in the United States and feel conflicted over your identity, your culture, and where you belong. So you listened to Terry's story. What did you hear in her story? Well, first, I heard the story of so many Latinas who grappled with the exact same thing. I heard pain, frustration, even regret, and then also some reconciliation and some and the relationship that she now has with her son being put in a similar position. I I heard some hope. I have been in this exact same conversation with different details hundreds of times over the last eight years. I hear it from adults that are probably Terry's age all the way down to 18-year-olds that are in her literal situation right now. What are some of the big themes that you hear and where are the pain points when people talk about going through this process? 
Yeah. So the big theme is what I call the crunch. And it's basically when you're caught between the expectations of your parents, which are also the expectations of our culture and collectivism and the your wants, needs, and desires growing up in a country that prioritizes something called self-reliance, which is what she wanted. She wanted more for herself. She wanted to go to college. She wanted to get away from the from what binded her down. I hate to say it like that, but what was constricting her, the expectations of her parents that she would stay close and probably help in the house. Yeah, so I was listening to Terry going, yep, had that conversation. She went through that in the 60s. I went through it in the early 90s. But as you say, people are having the exact same conversations in 2022. So what is it that has kept us Latinos from evolving in our understanding of what it means to have self-reliance, to go away to college, to be separated as a young person from your family. Like, why are we stuck? It's just something simply has not been distinguished. And that is many of our parents or grandparents came here for something better for themselves and ultimately their families. And they continue to embrace collective values, which are beautiful, prioritizes family, prioritizes the group and staying together. The only hitch is, is that self-reliance is the dominant ideology and belief system here in the United States. So the parents are delivering their children for a better life, right? But then when the kids actually want a better life, and especially when they're daughters, we're, yes. we have it a little bit harder. It's just a fact, right? So when we want something more, we stretch and want to do something more and bigger with our lives and really honor the sacrifice, but then we feel conflicted, like we're doing something wrong by pursuing something that's better for us, right? When really, when we actually pursue it, the degrees, the jobs, all of those things actually provide more, including pride, but more resources for the collective. So what I say is, once it's distinguished, the pull of the expectation of the promise of the future and the expectations of the past, right? Once that is talked about, distinguished, and discussed, and once a child actually has a chance to share how they feel about it, that's when things can change. And also to parents, parents having that that distinction, which is why many parents at the screenings before the pandemic, I did a ton of screenings with my film, and parents would say, hi, I just want to hug you and thank you. And now we're going home to apologize to our children. And I was like, go, go, go. <laughs> it's hard as a parent to reconcile. I might not be parenting my child in the best way. And it's a beautiful thing to actually combine these two things, collectivism and self-reliance, and create some kind of beautiful hybrid that honors both. First of all, I love that your film inspired parents to go home and apologize to their kids. I mean, <laughs> you're performing miracles. But here's the thing, though. Sometimes self-reliance is often misunderstood as selfishness among immigrant parents across the ethnic spectrum, mm -hmm. not just yeah. Latinos. So how do you help parents and kids understand that those two things are not the same. Yeah, well, so great point. And, you know, there's something called the singular perspective theory. And it's basically, we all believe that the way that we look at the world is the way that the world is, right? And the best example I can give 
are those, you know, those Danish cookies in the blue tin? Yes. You know, those, like if I show, oh, I have one right here. This right here is the cause of so many conflicts. Now, when I say what's in here, there are going to be some people that are like cookies or some people that are like scissors, pictures, sewing kits. I've heard everything, right? And they just know it to be true. And I know that this is a silly example, but it's a way that we can begin to understand, no, I'm right and you're wrong. And so when we come into things with that righteousness, we don't even give it a chance and examine it, right? The issue is, I'm going to just use the word that's used, selfishness, right? What we lose is agency, especially for women. And here's how it works. When someone is thinking, oh, I really want to go to college, I want to go, but because she stayed at home and because the decisions that she made, which is in the past, we can't do anything about it, this isn't a judgment, but more just like an analysis, she experiences a lack of agency over her own life. Mm. And the thing is, what I heard in that recording was, I knew I couldn't talk to them. She knew. Now, when a child is put in this situation, they truly believe that pursuing their own pursuing their own life with their own interests, even if it's to better themselves, right, which is so sad, means that they're selfish, then think about the other choices they end up making, especially women in their lives. And then think about how we as a community of Latinos over-index in incidences of domestic violence. These things are related. When we don't believe we have a choice, our life plays out like we don't have a choice. But when we practice self-reliance or selfishness, right, we begin to practice that muscle of what's going to be best for me. Now, the interpretation is what's best for me is wrong for you. That is just not true. What's best for me and what was best for her, she believes, is if she had a chance to go away and be whatever she wanted to be. I often think about the fact that self-determination is not selfish, but it's a hard concept for us to accept because we see it as a zero-sum game. Like, if you make choices for yourself, you're de facto making choices against us, the group. Right. Um, but then there's also the question of obedience. And this falls particularly hard on girls and women. Obedience is very big with us. And so what do you do with something as intractable as obedience in the Latino culture? Um, we talk about it, bringing all of these things up, Terry having the courage to share her story, It requires people sharing their story and then people listening and thinking, how, what can I detangle about my situation? And then that person, the listener, having the courage to have those hard conversations. And also to examine when betrayal comes up. Examine, because that is the number one word that I would hear if I pursue this for me, like go to get a graduate degree. If I pursue something, some amazing opportunity for myself, I'm betraying them. Those two things, although they look true, although they feel true, they are not true or related. You are coming with the word. (laughs) This is why miracles are happening when you screen your film. Here's another riddle. Often, our parents feel like they have to give up things or their reaction is to say, fine, I'm not getting involved. You're going to deal with the consequences. So we're back to that zero sum of if I do this, 
then I don't need you. I don't want you involved. You're no longer relevant in my life. How do we get them to understand that it's not zero sum? Yeah, I mean, so this is, I'm going to say the hardest place, the most challenging place. And because it's connected to that reverence um, and the deference and the respect that is expected of us. So when my work associates or personal friends are accustomed to seeing me without family around, specifically my mom, they have a more accurate view of the woman that I am. If they get a chance to see me with my mom, they see a different version of me. They see a version of me that acquiesces, that doesn't interrupt, that is quiet, that's calm. It's kind of an interesting way of code switching. We assume this way that we have to be with our parents and family. And this is not my favorite version of me. My favorite version of me is the me that I'm being right now with you here today. But how do we reconcile this? Well, the best that we can do, that I can think of anyway, is to recognize that it's kind of like a dead end, right? When the rule book of our parents, the rule book of collectivism says, you must defer to me, you must not question me, you must be obedient to me, so you cannot talk back to me. There is no dialogue, which is actually the situation that I'm currently in with my own mom. And the way, yeah, the way that I'm able to deal with it and understand it is precisely this. There is no capacity to understand past that expectation of deference, obedience, and respect. I'm going to put that in quotes because really when I respect myself and I respect her, but I see us both as two separate human beings is when I honor both of us. But if that is, if she is unable to see it that way, there's nothing I can do except for allow her the space and mourn the relationship, frankly, mourn what could be. Yeah, sometimes it's about accepting the limitations that our parents have at the moment and continuing to make the best choices for ourselves and continuing to leave room for them at some point down the line to be able to meet us where we're at. Um, but that we are not responsible for their growth. Oh, yeah, that's that is huge because we are made to feel responsible. <laughs> and I call it the invisible umbilical cord. Like when you're Latino, it never gets snipped. Like the metaphorical one, it stays alive, right? And then I'm conflicted because I have two kids and I see how I'm trying to keep that umbilical cord alive as well. So I have to constantly be checking myself, right? But it's very hard when it's a belief system because we don't question what we believe to be true. We just believe it to be true. But that's when we can decide, perhaps, to do something different. Denise, please, please come back. You were such a gift. I would love to. Oh, likewise. All right. Here's what we learned from Denise today. Make key distinctions. Recognize the different values you and your family bring to the table, like self-reliance versus prioritizing the collective. Doing so will help you understand the dynamics at play and will also make it easier to address conflict in a productive way. Avoid loaded language. Words like selfishness, betrayal, these can be used to make us feel guilty and overburdened. Notice when these words are being used and avoid carelessly using them yourself. And remember, resist the zero-sum game 
Self-determination is not selfishness. Self-determination is not selfishness. Repeat after me. Self-determination is not selfishness. Good decisions for you do not come at the expense of other people, especially your family members. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening and for sharing us. How to Talk to Mommy and Papi About Anything is an original production of LWC Studios. Virginia Lora is the show's producer. Kojin Tashiro is our mixer. Manuela Bedoya is our marketing lead. I'm the creator and host, Juleika Lantigua. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Talk to Mommy Papi. Bye, everybody. Same place next week. <laughs>